My name is Dan. I'm a uh, leader here at Grace Fellowship. Uh, one thing that some of you might not know about me is that um, back in back in the year 2000, I uh, briefly lived outside of Pennsylvania. It was about the only time I did that. It was in Staten Island, New York. In fact, you might hear the accent a little bit every now and then when you talk to me. Um, let me give you a quick story about my first day there. One of my coworkers who was from Brooklyn, invited me to meet her in Manhattan and go explore. Now, as a small-town kid, I was pretty excited to go do that. And it was an exciting day. After a very full day, it was now about 10 p.m., she turned to me and she said, Okay, you think you can find your way home now? <laughs> and I said, I thought to myself, No, no, I'm going to die out here. <laughs> um, but in my pride, I said, Sure, I can do that. Um, now, eventually, I did find my way south to the ferry, and I rode across the ferry, and then I sat at the bus terminal. And at this point, it's now close to, to midnight, because it just takes a while to, to do all that in, in New York. And um, by the way, buses didn't run on a schedule at that time of day. You just kind of had to sit there and wait for the one you wanted. Um, so as the minutes passed, I grew more and more afraid. Am I at the right bus station? Am I sitting in the right place and I wasn't sure if I'd ever get home. Finally though, that bus came over the hill and I saw that sign that I was really excited to see right on the front. It said Victory Boulevard. That's where I was heading. Now, I was excited to see that. But as I think back about it, it wasn't really what I was desperate for. I didn't really care about the collection of lights that made up the sign on the front of the bus. I was desperate for home. The sign just pointed me there. And that's all that signs are. When you're driving somewhere, it's just, it's just something painted on a piece of wood and it points you to what you really, really want. They point us to the truth. And that is the summary of the book of John, which we've been studying for the past year. It's a collection of signs that point us to the truth, which is Jesus. Signs like water being turned into wine. And not, not a bus sign, not something small. Signs like people being cured of terrible disease at a time in history when, by the way, you didn't get cured, you just waited to die. Even signs like dead people that came back to life. In fact, Jesus did so many signs that John didn't even write them all down. 21 chapters was not enough. We've been working through this book for a whole year, and today is the official wrap-up. This sermon is a bird's-eye view of the whole thing. So I'll be preaching specifically on what we might call the purpose statement of the book. It's one verse. If you remember, it's found in chapter 20, verse 31. You can go there if you'd like. Um, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. In fact, that's your outline. So if you're wondering what the point of the sermon is, look down at your page right now. That's it. It's just the verse spelled out as a sentence. Point one, so that you would believe that, so point A, Jesus is the Christ, 
subpoint B, the Son of God. Point two, and that by believing, subpoint A, you would have life, subpoint B, in his name. My goal in each of these little subpoints is to begin by explaining what those terms mean and then give examples from John that defend those explanations and then give you some practical implications so that you can actually get out there and do cool stuff. You ready? Okay, we're going to do point one. So you would believe Jesus is, subpoint A, the Christ. And um, so as I promised, I'm going to first start by explaining the term. What does Christ mean? Well, I'll start with an amazing fact. You guys ready? Christ is not Jesus' last name. <laughs> Some people actually believe that. Some people that profess to know Christ believe that. Um, it's actually a title. It comes from the Greek word, which is Christos, which is translated to the Hebrew word Messiah. Both of these words mean the same thing, anointed one. Now, what does anointed mean? Because we don't really do that too much. Anointing is putting oil or something comparable to it on the head of somebody. It's a ritual in which you're declaring that that person is on a mission from God to do a particular job. God chose them, so their job, their role is officially commissioned. It's objectively true. What was Jesus' job? Jesus' job was to be king and deliverer. I'm not going to read it, but in Daniel chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 32, it talks all about that if you'd like to examine it for yourself. So I say all that, given these definitions, to say this. Here's what the Bible means when it says Jesus Christ. It means Jesus, the anointed one, chosen by God to save the world. And we know that Jesus did his job because of the evidence of the cross. That's how he saved the world. I'd like to give you some examples from the text. And this is going to be more focusing on people's responses to Jesus as Christ. Ready? Here's your first example. In chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man and he does it. On the Sabbath, which, by the way, is the days the day that Jews are not supposed to work. Here's their response in chapter 9. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. See, they didn't believe Jesus was anointed. They actually thought he was crazy. Why? Well, because they trusted their own ideas about who Jesus was supposed to be, like in their minds. Well, I don't think that guy's a Christ because I think it should go this way. And so they just push him away. Here's your second example. In chapter 11, Jesus' good friend Lazarus dies. You remember that one? Lazarus' sister Martha is upset. And as Jesus draws her out, she says this. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, Jesus would later raise Lazarus from the dead, 
perhaps apart from the resurrection, his greatest sign. But Martha didn't need to see that to believe him. So in contrast to the Jews, Jesus' claim to be the Christ meant everything to Martha. It meant more than her feelings. She was not driven by her own perceptions. She was driven by objective belief in Jesus' anointed mission. So those are the two examples. So what does that anointing mean for us? Well, the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the fact that he's anointed by God means that as Christians, we interpret life's circumstances through a different lens than everyone, than everyone else. We see God's hand in absolutely everything. And we know that his purposes are good. So we act out of that reality. We respond to our circumstances with hope that the world does not have. And let me remind you, you probably know this, that is a daily, very difficult battle. Because the world says, do what you feel. And so does your body, by the way. So the question is, are you following Jesus or the world? I'll give you two application questions to draw you out, draw us out a little bit further. One is going to be about life and one is going to be about death. Okay, first one. Do you cultivate worship of Jesus' control over your life? I'll say it again. It's kind of a mouthful. Do you cultivate, that is practice, worship of Jesus' control over your life. Now, I say the word cultivate because you will rarely feel like worshiping God in all of life. Cultivation is a practice. It's a discipline. It's actually, it actually means like when you're growing crops, you're just carefully doing it. You're kind of, you know, you're manipulating the soil. You're watering it. You're making sure you don't forget to water it. You don't water it too much. Cultivation is a discipline, and it's hard. In fact, I'd say it's impossible to worship God's control if all you want to do is control your own life. You can't do both. So here are a few common life circumstances that you might be able to relate to if this, if this is you. When your car unexpectedly breaks, you're just driving, you know, you change your oil, you, you go get it serviced and all that, you're driving and just... You just stop right there dead on the highway. Do you curse or ignore Jesus? And I, I mean this. Do you curse him like, you know, what are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm trying to serve you. Like I'm trying to go to church and you're breaking my car down so I can't go to church. What are you doing? You do that or you just ignore him completely. You, well, you know, I'm going to just throw down some money and get a new car and you don't even pray. You just kind of fix it. How about when a loved one is unexpectedly hurt or dies? Do you curse or ignore Jesus? How about when you suffer under just bad authority? Like your boss is just horrible. Or maybe you're just under authority and you just don't like that. Here's one for the kiddos. Kids, when mom or dad corrects you, do you get angry or do you ignore them? Or do you just... The worst part is like when you kind of delay it, like you pretend you hear them, but then you come afterwards. Here's what all of these things have in common. 
all bitterness that we have when life gets hard, it's all aimed at Jesus ultimately. When you complain about the president, you're complaining about Jesus. When you're mad because your car broke, you're mad at Jesus. All bitterness is aimed at Jesus because he's running things. When Jesus isn't fitting into how you think life should work, you deny him and his plan just like the Jews did. Now, remember Martha. Think back to Martha. What did she do? She said, Jesus, you are the Christ as her brother Lazarus lay there dead. Do you think she felt like saying that? Now bear with me, because the call, when I say worship God in all circumstances, that probably brings up all kinds of stuff. Because it's often just, that's often just thrown out just flippantly. You know, just trust God, and then you just tell that to the person before you hang up the phone. And it might sound like I'm telling you to be a robot. You know, just shut your feelings down, you'll be fine. I'm a feeler, I can't do that. <laughs> um, Here's the thing, though. I'm not telling you to kill your feelings. The Bible just says they're not in charge. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. Feelings are good. Your hope is not that your feelings seem right. You don't not study the Bible when you get up because you say, no, I'm not feeling it today. You don't do that. Your hope is not that your feelings seem right. Your hope is that Jesus is the anointed king. What might that look like practically? I'll just use the car example. Practically, it might start with a prayer just like this. God, thank you for giving me a car. I don't deserve it. I don't even deserve to walk. I have made every effort to care for it. Though I am limited, I may have forgotten, so I, I haven't earned it. Please help me to trust you no matter what happens. Lord, I, I, I'd like you to fix it, but if it doesn't, I'm going to praise you. See, that's the part we miss. We just pray for the stuff we want. We say, God, please fix my car. Amen. And then it doesn't happen, and we keep doing it, and then we end up hating God because it's just about what we want, not about us trusting God no matter what happens. See, the cultivation, the practice of thinking like this, it's lifelong and growth might not seem obvious. It might not even seem like you're growing. A year could go by and you might think, I don't know if I've grown this year. But you know what? That's actually how cultivation works. Did you, did you ever grow a zucchini? Ever grow a zucchini? Okay, day one, it's like this big. Day two, you can't fit it in your house. <laughs> right? See, in a lot of us, we think that's how growth works. You know, it should happen quickly. We're not growing a zucchini. This is lifelong. You're not going to see the growth, probably. You might see milestones here and there, but I guarantee if you look back, if you've been a Christian for 10 years, you look back 10 years and you'll say, God has worked. And that's the point. The growth is lifelong, and you might not see growth day to day, but you will, and the fruit, by the way, is very much worth it. It's peace, no matter what. Just imagine the reality where nothing on earth can touch you. Nothing bothers you. I've met people like that. I'd like to be like them someday. Okay, that was your first application about life. It's trusting 
God even when your feelings aren't there. Here's one about death. Question number two, are you afraid to die or do you think death is horrible? You know, like, God, please don't let me die before I get married and have kids. Anybody ever do that? I did that. (laughs) Or it's like, God, let me die in my sleep, like peacefully. Or you just fear how and when it's going to happen. You're just constantly afraid. You know, you're just buckling up every like twice. And that's the thing. I mean, I won't lie. Death is going to happen. Your body is on the way out. It's just a matter of time. But here's the point. What's your hope as that inevitably happens? Or people you love die. Your hope is that Jesus is the anointed king. He died and it was horrible. But God raised him up. And he said this about the disciples in John chapter 20. He said, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Do you see the hope there? Our hope can be the same as theirs. Because the objective truth of Jesus as Christ changes how we look at everything, even death. So, The fact that Jesus is anointed, the fact that he's the Christ, the fact that he's connected objectively to God gives us unbelievable hope. Let's talk about how Jesus is connected to God. Subpoint B, the Son of God. So what does the Son of God mean? Well, let me start with the opening statement of John. The Word, that's Jesus, was with God and was God. Now, how can you be with something and the same as it? This is an unbelievably complex topic, and I don't think I'm going to get it all out. But let me just explain with an example. I'm married. Christians call it one flesh. You know, like my wife and I are seen as one person. Now, are we actually physically one person? No. Here's an example. My wife is pregnant. I'm not pregnant. This is a hamburger right here. You know, it's like this. When you hear the phrase Dan and Becky, it means half Dan and half Becky. And boom, you put them together and you get Dan and Becky. It's like 50-50. Now, Jesus is not like this. We think he is, but he's not. We we treat him like he's 50% God and 50% man, like he's a demigod, you know, like Thor or something like that. But he's 100% of both. To paraphrase a a fellow Christian, Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man. He's 200%. He's 100% of both. He's all God Oh man, he's as much God as God. He was as much man as you and I were people. Besides, here's the thing. If you can't get your head around that, just cook it down this way. God can't be 50% of anything. If he is, he's not God. Now I say this, not just to give you hope, but to help you, because there are a ton of religions out there who claim Jesus was anointed by God. They believe subpoint A, but they don't believe this one. They think Jesus was sent by God, but they don't think he was God. 
For example, if you meet a Mormon, they're great. Um, you know, they'll, they'll bait you and they'll say this. You say, well, you know, I, we just like Jesus. And they're like, we love Jesus too. That's what they say. They say, we love Jesus too. But if you read the Book of Mormon, their version of the Book of John says in chapter one, the word was with God and the word was of God. Or some say the word was a God. Jesus and God are not together like that. They're separate. And um, they're lying. John the author testifies elsewhere, as did the disciples, and John the Baptist did too. And here's the thing. So did Jesus. In fact, that's the reason the Jews killed him. Jesus wasn't just an anointed man from God. He claimed to be God. Chapter 5, verse 18 says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that's the summative verse. I mean, chapter 20, verse 31, the one we're basing this outline on, if you look at it, there's a comma between the word Christ and Son of God, which means those two identities are inseparable. You can't pick one or the other, and because of the resurrection, you can't deny either one. Why? Because of the resurrection, it proves that Jesus is God because, you know what, when people die, they tend to stay that way unless God does something about it. And whether you believe Jesus or God is actually the difference between condemnation by God and freedom. Here's what I mean. What I mean is it's not splitting hairs when you say, well, we believe he's, you know, of God triune and somebody says we don't. You're not splitting hairs. This is actually the difference between life and death. Here's why. Chapter 3, verse 18. You can write that down if you want. Whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus said, I'm the only way to heaven. And that means that if you're a Mormon, you can't like him anymore because he says he's God. And if you don't believe that, you should think he's a lunatic. But he's not. He's our Savior. And the Bible says this, and it's not popular. The Bible says eternity is coming. The Bible says the dead will rise. And the Bible says God will judge anyone who does not trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin, which only he can provide. This is not a secondary optional decision. Eternity rests on this. Here's what's implied by all of what I just said under subpoint B. The fact that Jesus is God doesn't just redefine life here. It redefines eternity. So the application question is this. Do you live your life on earth with heaven in mind? I'll just focus on heaven if you're a Christian. You remember the rope illustration from a few weeks ago? Remember, imagine a rope that goes way out, you know, Sarah, it goes cross country, you know, but it keeps going and it goes around the world and it keeps going and it doesn't stop. And then you imagine the tip of the rope and it's maybe this big and you can hold it in your hand. That's your life in light of eternity. 
And you spend so much of your time and energy thinking and worrying about that part. It's like this big and you're like, I'm going to save up here so that I can enjoy this part. That's you. And I think that's the reason why so many of us live in fear. You spend so little time thinking about heaven that you eventually forget it's even there. And you forget Jesus is there calling you to endure and calling you to join him. And so what's the secret to living a fearless life on earth? Believe in Jesus. Believe he's the son of God. Believe that he is not just the son of God, but he's the Christ and the anointed one. Everything under point one. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. The rest of the sermon will actually be in point two as we see the results of our belief in Jesus. Point two, and by believing, sub point A, you would have life. Let's define what it means to have life. It means just that. It means that a person is dead unless Jesus does something. Now, of course, I don't mean physically dead because people are walking around even if they don't believe in him. What I mean is that it's actually a lot worse than being dead. I'll give you a few verses and then an illustration to help you understand. In chapter 1, verse 4, in Jesus is life, and that life is the light of men. And then chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to the people saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, this life is something that only comes from Jesus. And the metaphor used to explain this is light in the midst of darkness. Here's a quick illustration. Imagine you're in a big maze and you have to get out, but it's pitch black and you can't see anything. The darkness all around you represents sin. That's the sin you do and the sin that people do against you. Now, with no light, what can you do against the darkness? You can maybe fumble around a little bit, but you can't escape. That's what I mean by worse than dead. People without the light of Jesus are just stumbling around in the darkness until they die. That's the condition the world is in. When you encounter people who do not know or trust who Jesus is, they are not Bad people in need of help. They're not even hurt people who need healing. I know we use that stuff. They are dead people in need of life. Jesus is the only life. But all it takes to have that life is trust that Jesus is who he says he is. They don't need to get cleaned up before they come to church. Trust that Jesus is who he says he is, anointed and the son of God. That's the life that can come out of it. Now, here's good news. This life that I'm talking about, it's actually guaranteed by Jesus. It's final and it's for anyone. Here's what I mean by final. Jesus says this in John chapter 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's final. It's guaranteed. 
And by for anyone, I mean this. Jesus says this in John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, after the death of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Here's what's implied. Under that sub-point, when it says, you would have life, the you is anybody reading the book. Anybody can be a Christian. That's why John wrote. That's the title. It says, why John wrote. It's not just why John wrote John. Jesus is why John had the ability to write anything, and he was delighted to. How about you? For you, the implication is that it's not too late. God's arms are long enough to reach you. So many of you guys probably walk around thinking, yup, that was it. He doesn't want me anymore. How about everybody else in the world? You know, it's not too late for them either, right? I mean, have you given up on people? You know, you, you try to share Christ with somebody and they're like, uh, you know, I'm kind of busy this week. And you're like, well, oh well, I tried. And then you just never try again. It's not too late for them. You've got a job to do. Tell them. So what does that look like? Like, what does this life look like practically? You know, you just tell them, how do you do that? How do you endure? That's our last section. It's uh, subpoint B, in his name. Last term. What does in his name mean? Well, the name of Jesus is your greatest passion. Now, I can think of no greater example on earth of this than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the man in the book of John who at the beginning paved the way for Jesus' arrival. And when Jesus arrived, John just kind of humbly faded into the background as Jesus' ministry absolutely took off. Consider this example from chapter 3 when John's disciples are flocking to Jesus and the remaining few disciples of John point this out to him. John says this in chapter 3 verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Let's understand this. For the, for the sake of time, I'll just skim the surface of this passage. There's a lot of metaphors going on. John is comparing Jesus to a groom and himself to the friend of the groom. Say, maybe a best man or groomsman. So that's John. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone to a wedding, you know, as a single person and notice yourself getting a little jealous at the bride of the groom? You know, I should be up there. This should be my party. How long am I going to be single? You ever thought that when you're at a wedding? I did a bunch of times. Um, is John like that? Nah. He's not just okay with it. He's not just okay with being a groomsman and it not being his party. His joy is complete. John's just honored to be at the wedding. 
and for his faith, Jesus later says, John is the greatest man born of a woman. Here's the implication of the, of the phrase, in his name. The implication is this, it's not your party. And that's fantastic news. Do you live like it's your party? Like here, here's some application questions as you maybe consider that a bit. Question number one. Do you typically consider yourself either awesome or hopeless? Like, is that you? Do you walk around like, you know, I'm awesome. Do you walk around like, man. Both mindsets point actually to the same conclusion. It means you're the center of your own universe. Like, I don't need God or God can't reach me. That's living like it's your party. Here's your hope. It's not your party. But Jesus is inviting you to his party because he loves you. And his party's better anyway. <laughs> Question number two. Is your life full of stress? Do you, lo- do you lose sleep or just constantly lash out at people? Or maybe you just go home and you lock yourself in your office because you're just done. Maybe you just stay awake at night or just giving up on sleep altogether. That it points to the conclusion that you're probably trying to take on far more than you were designed to do. Or you're just maybe like, you know, you can't say no to people. So you just keep saying yes all the time and you're just exhausted. You couldn't imagine the reality of admitting to people that you can't do that one thing. And I get it. I mean, there are busy seasons. If you have a newborn child, you're not going to sleep. I get that. I'm about to really get it in a month. (laughs) See, I get it. There are busy seasons. But for some of you, those seasons have been the past 5 or 10 or 20 years, and you're just afraid to admit it. What's your hope? Your hope is this. It's not your party. You're not God. Jesus slept. Do you know that Jesus said no to people? He turned down people that were sick and he was their only hope. And he was like, I got to sleep. And he left. You know what I love? That the guy who he's God incarnate and he doesn't need sleep and he sleeps better than we do. Friends, that's the point. That's our hope. Jesus is amazing. He's the point of the book of John. He's the point of the Bible. He's the Christ, as we read. He's the Son of God. And by believing in Him, we get life in His name. I'm going to close this wrap-up with this verse from chapter 6. After John explained, or rather, after Jesus explained the radical nature of who He was, and many of His followers walked away. He said, I'm God, and they left. Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? And then Peter answered him, to whom else shall we go? Friends, who else can you go to? Who's going to give you hope like Jesus? Nothing else can save you and Jesus happily offers you life in his name. So now what? Maybe you're new to the church. 
Or maybe you're, you're a broken, long-time professing Christian and you're just trying to rehab and make sense of life. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you just want to run hard and continue to hold fast to the gospel. You're like, I believe in Jesus. Now what? Well, that's our next sermon series. Our next sermon series is the epistles of First, Second, and Third John. And what we're going to be doing in there is we're going to be reading through John's letters to churches and people in churches who are just like you. They're dealing with stuff that you deal with all the time. People who have believed that Jesus is the Christ and now they want to continue in the faith so they can someday rejoice in heaven with Jesus forever. I'm looking forward to it. For now, let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your work through John. I thank you that you called him to write these things and that we are learning and being freed from ourselves thousands of years later. Lord, I pray that anybody who has heard this today and does not know you would come to an understanding and a trust of you so that they can have life in your name. And I pray for anybody here who's still wrestling with it. They're not sure if you're the Christ or the Son of God. I pray that they would continue to ask questions, that they would continue to turn to the Scripture and that they would do so humbly, wanting to understand you. I pray that you would draw them to yourselves. And I pray for everybody else who believes, but just wants to continue to believe, and continue to trust, and continue to act in the reality of new life. Lord, that they would trust you, that they would eagerly dive into the scriptures, that they would seek um, time with other believers and that they would most importantly share this good news with other people so that they can have life too.